This ADN Politics Podcast is brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible. Let's just estimate right now how many cups of coffee has this room consumed in the last 24 hours. I've had three in a Red Bull. <laughs> a Red Bull is like 15 <laughs> cups of coffee. <laughs> how about you guys? Move along for me. I think I might have had five or six. Iris, what's your coffee? Just well, two. Well, this two? and the, the Frappuccino thing, that probably is equivalent to like three cups of coffee. You're a monster. <laughs> you had a monster too? No. <laughs> no. Vicky had the monster. Okay. From the Anchorage Daily News, this is ADN Politics, a podcast navigating Alaska's changing and sometimes wild political landscape. I'm your host, Elizabeth Harball. On Tuesday, Alaskans experienced a new kind of election night, our first general election under ranked choice voting. Because of how that works, there's a fair bit that is still up in the air. That said, as the vote counts rolled in overnight, some clear storylines emerged. I'm joined by ADN politics reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire to talk about what we can and can't take away from early results. Iris and Sean, thanks again for being here. Good to be here. Great to be here. Sean, I want to start with you and do some expectation setting. Remind us why we don't have definitive results right now and when that will happen. So it's largely because of the ranked choice voting process. We're going to have to wait until November 23rd for that tabulation process to be completed. So at that time, Gail Fanumiai from the Division of Elections is going to look at all the races. If one candidate gets over 50% of the first choice votes, that means the counting process stops and a candidate's the winner. But if no candidate does, that's when we see that ranked choice voting process take place. You might remember that happening in August with Representative Mary Peltola when she won the special election. So that's happening November 23rd at 4 p.m. It's going to be live streamed. We're going to be watching that. So that's a big reason why we're not getting clearer results in these big statewide races and some of these legislative races. And then there are also thousands of outstanding absentee and question ballots, which are yet to come in and be counted. And that's going to be key for some of these closer legislative races. So that's a factor as well. Iris, one race we saw change a lot as the night's results came in was the Senate contest. Can you explain what happened there? Yeah, the Senate race is the perfect example for why we need to be cautious when we're interpreting these early results and remember that there's still thousands of ballots yet to be counted. So what we saw when the first returns came in after 9 p.m. on Tuesday was that right-wing Republican Kelly Shabaka was leading incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski by around 7% at one point. And that made Kelly Shabaka pretty confident at that point that she was in a good position to overtake Murkowski. But then as additional results came in through the night, that gap narrowed. And at this point, as of Wednesday afternoon, that gap is sitting below 2%. So really, there is a chance that Senator Murkowski could end up having the greater number of first choice votes when all votes are counted. But beyond that, we have to remember this is a ranked choice election. And the Democrat in the race, Pat Chesbro, has just around 10 percent of first choice votes at this point. 
And a lot of Chesbro supporters will probably rank Lisa Murkowski second. So what started out as something that looked like a pretty good result for Shabaka ended up looking like a pretty good result for Murkowski. What are Murkowski and Shabaka saying at this point about the results? Both of them had events for their supporters in Anchorage on Tuesday night. And when results came out, Shabaka was initially extremely happy. The mood in her room was celebratory. She said that she was pleased with how the results were looking for her. As additional results came in, the mood changed a little bit, but she said that she was still confident. In Murkowski's room, the reaction was maybe reversed. Initially, there was a little bit of concern among her supporters. Murkowski arrived at her celebration after results had come out, and she was kind of making the rounds, talking to her supporters. And then as those later rounds of results came out, the mood turned more jubilant in her room, and she started out singing the Sound of Music song, I Have Confidence, and that confidence appeared to pan out for her. She literally sang? She literally sang. Sean, let's turn to you now and unpack a race that's looking pretty much decided, and that's the Constitutional Convention question. That is going down in a big way. Was this a surprise? I think it's fair to say the margin was a surprise. We're seeing around 70% of voters as of Wednesday uh, having rejected the constitutional convention question. And we were hearing from both sides, from supporters and opponents, they thought it was going to be much closer this year due to deadlock in the state capital, primarily over the permanent fund dividend. They thought in this cycle we might see it getting really close, and it really wasn't. Ten years ago, there was a two-to-one margin rejecting the constitutional convention question, and now the margin's grown even more, and more voters have rejected that. So I would say the margin is a big surprise, and it seems to have been sweeping across Alaska. Voters are rejecting this. What are some of the factors that may have led to that result? So one of them could be the size of the organizations involved in the campaigns. Defend Our Constitution, the leading no group, had raised $4.7 million, spent around $4 million to try and convince Alaskans to vote no. The yes side had raised around $60,000 and had spent around $50,000. So you can see there's a huge difference in, uh, in the money that was being raised, the campaigns, the television ads, the messaging. There's also then a big bipartisan group of... Uh, supporters that were going out and spruiking the No campaign. They, there was also all these organizations like the Alaska Federation of Natives, the Alaska Miners Association, United Fishermen of Alaska. All these groups were going out and communicating that Alaskans should vote no on this. So hearing from Defend Our Constitution, the leading No group, they felt that was the reason why we are seeing this margin that we are, uh, coupled with, they say, their message of the risks that would be associated with opening the Constitution, the threat of opening Pandora's box, as they phrase that. Now, we've reached out to Convention Yes, the leading yes campaign on the Constitutional Convention question. We haven't really heard back yet. So it would be interesting to um, to understand in the coming days why they think uh, it, the results are as we're seeing them. Iris, there's another statewide race that's looking pretty certain right now, and that's the governor's race. What are you taking away from the numbers there so far? 
So again, taking into account that there are still thousands of ballots yet to be counted, at this point, Governor Dunleavy has more than 50 percent of the vote. So if that holds, Governor Dunleavy, the Republican, could win this race without even getting to the point of having a ranked choice tabulation. And we knew that Dunleavy was ahead in the polls, but this is a surprising outcome because really he's winning quite definitively at this point with the ballots that have been counted so far. But Dunleavy had some real challenges as governor. For a while there, there was a recall campaign against him that was gaining steam until the pandemic hit. Uh, Two of his attorneys generals had to step down. There were other issues that we could talk about for a while. But yet he's in a place to feel really good about the results today. How do we square those things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty interesting question. And I think to answer that, we really have to look at the other candidates in the race. So Democrat Les Guerra currently is in second place. Independent former governor Bill Walker is in third place. Both of them were kind of appealing to the exact same voters. And their message was, Don Levy has not done a good job in his current term in governor, and we need a change. That was essentially the heart of their campaign campaign for the past few months. But really what this result shows us is that the majority of Alaskans actually disagree with that message. They seem to think that Dunleavy is doing a good job. But we need to remember that there are some factors contributing to this outcome that are, to a certain extent, outside of Dunleavy's control. This year, Alaskans got a dividend that was more than $3,000, one of the largest in the state history. And that was something that Dunleavy was pushing for, but it was really something that was only made possible thanks to these geopolitical factors that led to oil prices being very high and the state having this unexpected windfall of revenue. And that wasn't thanks to a, a policy proposal by Dunleavy. He really just took advantage of this thing that happened that was outside of his control to, to give out this dividend. This dividend landed in Alaskans' bank accounts just weeks before the election. And from conversations that I've been having today, Wednesday, it sounds like for some voters, that was a factor that they had in mind when they headed to the polls. What are the other gubernatorial candidates saying today, the day after the election? Do they see any path to victory? Initially, when I spoke to Guerra and Walker after the results came out on Tuesday night, they both seemed to think that there could still be a narrow path to uh, victory for them or for them to overtake Dunleavy with these um, absentee ballots that are yet to be counted. But in the light of day, things look a little bit different. And Guerra posted on social media today in a way that sort of acknowledged the fact that his path is pretty narrow at this point. He didn't concede outright, but he did acknowledge that at this point, it it would take a pretty shocking outcome for Dunleavy to be unseated. Okay. With that, we're going to take a short break. We will pick up with the U.S. House race when we return. At Steam.Coffee, we're proud to support great journalism and we're proud of our pursuit of great coffee. We search the world for the finest raw materials and then roast them to perfection at our Anchorage headquarters. All with one thing in mind, the finest coffee possible in your cup. Come visit us at either of our Anchorage cafes or online at steamdot.com. We are back with ADN Politics, talking to Daily News reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire. 
Uh, let's pick up with the last statewide race we haven't talked about. That would be the House race. Iris, how is Representative Mary Peltola feeling coming out of Tuesday night? She is feeling good about the results. So as of Wednesday afternoon, she has around 47 percent of first place votes. That's a pretty strong showing. It's not above that 50 percent threshold that would get her to automatic victory without ranked choice voting tabulation. But we have to remember that in the August special election, she got 40 percent of first place votes and still won that special election. So this result result is really putting her in a pretty strong position. And at her campaign celebration Tuesday night, the mood was jubilant. She was very excited. She seemed very excited about the end of the era of endless campaign ads and texting and phone calls, but also perhaps this new chapter for her heading to Congress potentially for two years. Can we dig into the numbers a little bit more there? Is there a path for either of the Republicans to win at this point? Again, as of today, Wednesday afternoon, former Governor Sarah Palin is leading Nick Begich. She's in second place. He's in third place. She has, as of right now, around 26 percent of the vote. He has around 24 percent of the vote. There is a possible theoretical scenario where one of those two Republicans could overtake Peltola if that rank the red message really sank in and all of those Republican voters ranked the other Republicans second, regardless of who they chose to rank first. Um, But that seems like a narrow path because the reality is that even though in recent weeks the two Republicans have been telling their supporters to rank the red, there is this lingering animosity between the two of them. You have Sarah Palin accusing Nick Begich of being a Democrat in hiding because he has these very well-known Democratic relatives who've served the state as Democrats in the past. And then you have Nick Begich casting doubt on Palin's campaigning style. In recent weeks, she has decided to leave the state. She's gone to New York City and done interviews on national TV, spent a lot of time talking to people outside of the state. Uh, The reality is it appears that that strategy worked for Palin in the race between the two Republicans. But again, with that lingering animosity between the two of them, there is still a chance that one of them could overtake Paltola, but uh, it's a pretty narrow path. From where you sit, was this a little easier or was it harder for Peltola to gain the edge than it was for the special election in August? So this race for Peltola was extremely different from the one that preceded the August election. Ahead of the August election, she was the least known candidate statewide. She had the least amount of money compared to her opponents. And now she has a multi-million dollar fundraising edge over her Republican opponents. She has become a very well-known name. And that's thanks to the fact that when she was elected, she became the first Alaska native elected to Congress. And there was a lot of media attention on that, both in the state, nationwide. And that gave her a lot of support from across the political spectrum as well. She has support from Senator Murkowski, a Republican, and also from former staffers of Don Young, who was a Republican as well. 
But she also has support from Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, and from Deb Holland. So really, Peltola has this broad network of support at this point, and that has enabled her to, what we're seeing so far, get a broader share of first place votes and really run a campaign that has been pretty different from her campaigning earlier this summer. Sean, I'm curious about those 59 seats in the state legislature. On election night, we were not quickly seeing a clear story with all the different factors at play in so many seats. But now that there's been some time passing, more rounds of results are in, do you feel like things are clearer? In some ways, yes, and in other ways, not at all. So in the ways that it is a little clearer, It looks as if, with the caveat that there are a lot more ballots still to be counted, the ranked choice voting tabulation process needs to happen. With all of those caveats, it looks as if there's going to be a roughly even amount of Republicans elected to the legislature and a roughly equal number of Democrats on left-leaning independents on the other, in both chambers, in both the State House and the Senate. Now, There are some key races where this ranked choice voting tabulation process is going to be key for who comes out on top. We're expecting a couple of leading Republicans to maybe be overwhelmed. This ranked choice voting tabulation process happens and a couple of Democrats as well. So it's really hard to draw conclusions about what this is going to mean in terms of majorities, but it looks as if uh, it's going to be a pretty evenly divided legislature. So how are things shaping up for the state Senate, for example? So what I'm hearing speaking to senators, and again, this is the day after election day, there may have been some big developments between when we're recording this and when you hear this. There might have been an organization process, although I think that's probably unlikely. But it looks as if uh, it's more likely than not that there will be a bipartisan coalition in the Senate. It looks as if there might be nine Democrats elected to the Senate in the 20-seat Senate. They would just need to tempt over or lure over a couple of moderate Republicans and they could form a bipartisan coalition. Now, maybe that nine turns out to be eight or seven and uh, then it becomes more difficult for Democrats. Maybe Republicans are able to hold their caucus together. They've had big divides there. But as I say, it's looking more likely than not that there will be a bipartisan coalition. But handshake deals have fallen apart at the 11th hour multiple times over the past few years. So uh, we don't want to draw too many conclusions. Just know that these closed-door discussions are going on as we speak about what majority and minority caucuses might look like. And how about the State House? How are things looking there? It looks pretty similar to what we've seen the last few cycles in that there's a very evenly divided House, and it looks after the results, once we find out the ranked choice voting tabulation process in a couple of weeks, it looks like it could be 21 Republicans, 20 Republicans, something like that, right around the very slim majority number that would be needed to form a Republican caucus in its own right to form a majority. But negotiations could change that. We could see one legislator or a couple legislators from the left leaning side of the spectrum, jump over and join the Republicans or vice versa. So I think the House is really going to be decided in the coming days, coming weeks, possibly right before the legislative session starts or into the legislative session. I would expect discussions to continue there. And we're going to have to see what happens with these outstanding ballots and with ranked choice voting. Uh, It's very uncertain what's going to happen in the House. So with 
Governor Dunleavy in a pretty good position to hold his office. Do you have thoughts on what kind of scenarios might start to play out come January on big issues like the state budget? Or is it just entirely too soon to say right now? I think it's too early to say with us not knowing what these caucuses are going to look like, because the majorities are really important in terms of the flow of legislation. So if we see a more conservative majority in the House and the Senate, you could expect that working well, say, with Governor Dunleavy, if he if he does, in fact, turn out to be re-elected. Conversely, as we've seen in the past few years, there could be this gridlock between the governor's office and the legislature if there are these more progressive majorities in the House and the Senate. I think these discussions and which majorities form are going to give us a better idea about this, but I think it's really too early to say in terms of what's going to happen with specific policies. Iris and Sean, I'd like to hear from you both on this question. Did the results of the August open primaries give us a decent preview for how things played out in the general election, or is it more complicated than that? Um, Iris, let's start with you. Yeah, I'd say that the August primary was a pretty good preview. And I remember thinking at the time, this is like a very convenient poll, and that really turned out to be the case. Let's take the governor's race, for example. Back in August, Dunleavy had a pretty commanding lead in the vote that has translated to his lead now. Back in August, we also saw this tight race between Guerra and Walker for second and third place. And again, we're seeing that play out right now. In the Senate race, we saw this preview for how the vote can change over time as more ballots are counted. Because again, Back in August, when the first round of results came out, Shabaka appeared to be neck and neck with Murkowski. But then as more results came in, Murkowski's lead was established and then grew and grew to a point where she was heading into the general election feeling pretty confident. And then on the House side, we had, of course, an entire election to, to rely on. And there we saw this first take on what ranked choice voting would look like in Alaska and the kind of outcome that can emerge when two candidates from the same political background, in this case, the two Republicans, Palin and Begich, are duking it out. And that leaves room for a candidate from the opposite side of the political spectrum, in this case, Paltola, a Democrat, to take the lead and take the win. Sean, any additional thoughts there? Yeah, so I'd say generally the legislative races followed what we saw in the August primary. There were a couple of surprises. Tuckerman Babcock, for instance, he's a former head of the Alaska Republican Party. He looked like he was going to win uh, from the August primary, but now he's quite far behind Kenai Peninsula Borough Assembly member Jesse Bjorkman, and he actually took to social media on Wednesday and essentially conceded, saying, you know, yes, there are outstanding ballots, but I congratulate uh, Jesse Bjorkman on his new role. So that was one that was a surprise. Uh, Senator Mike Schauer, uh, was still a Republican, was also behind in the August primary against Doug Massey. He's a former head of the Alaska Wildlife Troopers. Now he's leading after the general election, after the results we've seen as of Wednesday afternoon. So there have been a couple of surprises. It is following this trend in the Senate of moderates and Democrats doing well, looking like they're going to pick up a couple of seats as of Wednesday afternoon with the ballot results we've seen. And then in the House, it is following the trend of an evenly divided uh, state house. I want to end with another question for you both. 
What are you most curious to learn more about in the next days and weeks as we move toward getting final results? Sean, let's start with you there. I think for me, the biggest thing is the organization question, because it's so important to what sort of bills are able to pass, how the legislature is going to work with the governor. Uh, That's going to be a really big part of that. And we assume Dunleavy is going to win. That's what the results are pointing towards. How is that affecting the organization question? That's what we're going to be asking in coming days and coming weeks. It's going to be really fascinating to see how that all works out. And if the legislature looks pretty similar to how it has for the last four years, which has been difficult for Dunleavy, difficult for him as he's tried to bring about his message and his vision for Alaska, is that going to continue or is it going to be a bit different? So that that's something I'm very interested in. Iris, what about you? I think that one interesting takeaway that I have from the results that we have so far is this realization that under Alaska's new ranked choice voting system, you can have very different types of candidates winning all on the same ballot. So here we have Trump-endorsed candidate in the governor's race taking the lead, very moderate Republican in the Senate race taking a, a potential lead, and a Democrat in the House race. So three very different political philosophies, and it appears that at least some voters potentially ranked all three of those philosophies first on their ballot, first or second. So I've heard this described to me today as a la carte voting. You don't have to choose only Democrats on your ballot or only Republicans. You can really pick and choose what kinds of candidates fit your interests and align with what you're looking for in different kinds of races. And I think that's really interesting, regardless of if and how these results change in the coming days, we have to reckon as a state with this new voting system that we have and the kinds of implications that it will have with our representatives in Congress, our state legislature, and the kind of things that the legislature can accomplish with the candidates that can emerge from this system. So there, to me, are a lot of really interesting topics to explore there. And I think that people will be looking at this within the state and also from without of the state. You will have people from the lower 48 potentially looking to Alaska and saying, hmm, maybe we're interested in what's going on up there. Yeah, all super interesting questions. Well, Iris and Sean, thank you so much for being here after a long night of election coverage. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to ADN Politics. You can subscribe to the show in whichever podcast app you're listening to right now. You can keep up with the rest of our coverage on ADN.com. And you can subscribe to ADN there, which is the best way to support our work, including this show. Thanks to our guests today, ADN Politics reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire. This episode was produced with help from Zachariah Hughes and Evan Phillips. Our music is by Evan Phillips. David Hewlin is our editor. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. See you next week. Thanks for listening. This episode of ADN Politics was brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible.